Well, this past week saw the anniversary of the theatrical release of the third series in the Lord of the Rings movie trilogy, The Return of the King, and you cannot imagine my excitement as a Tolkien nerd and as one who's married to a Tolkien nerd and one, a couple that's produced four Tolkien nerdettes to be able to finally call a sermon by title, The Return of the King. But, the, but I do it without damage to the passage because that's exactly what 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 is talking about, the return of our king. And of course, Tolkien was a believer, and in many ways, he sought to parallel the Christian life, the life of this world, uh, in some of his writings. Uh, for instance, in the Return of the King series, the Lord of the Rings series, you have a dark, evil Lord, Sauron, and an, and an evil, false prophet, the mouth of Sauron. You have uh, a good people, sorely oppressed, throwing the world in darkness. You have apostasy of the wizard Saruman, and of men working with orcs and to follow the dark Lord. You have a great climactic battle between good and evil, and you have the destruction of evil and the restoration of the kingdom. And for our purposes, you have the long hidden king revealed, which was spoken of in prophecy, from the ashes of fire shall be woken, a light from the shadow shall spring, renewed shall be blade that was broken, the crownless again shall be king. That, folks, is going to come true one day. Our hidden king is coming back, and we will all see his crown, and we will enjoy the splendor of his kingdom forever and ever and ever. God has given us First and Second Thessalonians so that we as Christians will live in a life that is befitting of one who is waiting for the return of the king. So we're going to start a series here that's going to talk about the timing of the return of of the king in Second Thessalonians. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask that he would unmind this most fascinating and this important teaching from Holy Scripture. Lord, we do come to you. We pray blessings upon our time, God, as we look at Holy Scripture. In so many ways, I struggle with passages like this because good people might have different conclusions to the text than what I might have. So with a certain amount of trembling and also a, a, an appropriate level of humility, we come before you and pray, God, that the Holy Spirit would apply these truths to our hearts, Lord, and that we would be edified and blessed and encouraged and challenged and rebuked as we look to you today, as we slowly go through each word, each text, each chapter, Lord, let us not miss one single small blessing that you would have for us. Help us to be diligent to pay attention to search the truth of Scripture for ourselves, Lord. And Lord, let us live in the light of the return of the King. In Christ's name, amen. Please do turn to 2 Thessalonians. And uh, I'll be honest with you, this, this sermon series kind of kept growing and growing and growing and growing. Uh, and uh, so we're breaking it up. And it's actually, we're going to uh, uh, kind of handle fewer verses that I had anticipated in your home group helps insert. But you will find that insert of somewhat benefit as we look at it. We have kind of a breakdown of the beginning of this series here. Uh, and also some questions that you can use in your home group, but also in your personal reflection. Uh, and I would challenge you to, to follow up with your own reading of the uh, eschatology, the return of, uh, of Christ, uh, as we look through this. 
Uh, so uh, we're going to uh, let me read at least uh, verses to uh, to verse 12 of Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through uh, 12. And then we'll begin our series here uh, on the return of the king. God says, the Apostle Paul writes, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, and the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he may be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they might believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who do not believe the truth but took pleasure in in wickedness. Can you see why I struggle a little bit in the preparation of this sermon series as we look at just this is heavy, heavy stuff. But it's very, very important as we look at these texts. Of course, uh, these texts don't stand alone. Uh, an understanding of uh, Jesus's Olivet Discourse recorded for you, Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke chapter 21 would be very important. Chapters uh, in Daniel, chapters 7 and 8 would be of assistance here. Of course, the whole book of Revelation also speaks of this. So we'll also look at parallel passages uh, to, in order to try to seek to mind the depths of what it is that Paul is talking about here. And we'll also talk about some of the problems with this particular passage. But I do want to go to now, as we have opened up this series, I'm going to look at Matthew chapter 24, verses 4 through 11, the Olivet Discourse, spoken uh, right before Jesus was betrayed and crucified crucified on the Mount of Olives, and he speaks about the end times. He speaks about the time of the return of the king. And picking up with verse 4, it says, Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. And you will be hearing of wars and of rumors of wars. See to it that you're not frightened. For those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and the various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs, and they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations on account of me. And at that time, many will fall away and will deliver up one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will rise and will mislead many. 
And because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to the whole world for a witness to the nations, and then the end shall come. So but Jesus is basically one of the many things that Jesus is saying. Now, that's about 15 sermons in itself right there as well, is it not? But one of the things that Jesus is saying here is that the return of the king will be obvious. It will be obvious. You will know when it's going to come. He says here, as far as, far as uh, uh, lightning suffice from the east to the west, so far shall be the, the coming of the Son of Men. So the timing of the events are going to be such that we will know when the time has come. But the problem is, is there been some confusion about when Jesus would return with the Thessalonian church. Evidently, some of the Christians had been taught or had thought that he had already come, that they had missed his return. And you can be sympathetic with that because they were going through a great deal of persecution. They were struggling. They had been introduced to Christ. They realized the shackles of their sin had gone away. They had fled from the darkness of paganism into the light of Christianity. And they were really struggling. They were having a hard time. Life was becoming unbearable. So they thought this must be the end or something's wrong. Maybe he came back. We didn't know it. And we've been, to use a phrase in the vernacular, left behind. And Paul is trying to discourage that thought. Understand that part of what you're going through is just what the people of God are going to go through. You will know when the time comes. So as we mind the depths of this passage, as we go through slowly and carefully in order to try to understand uh, what it is that Paul is saying, and then to freely admit we're not quite sure what Paul is saying, we're going to look at really what the signs that precede the day of the Lord uh, in, uh, in verses 3 through 4, what restrains the day of the Lord, verses 5 through 7, and what happens on the day of the Lord, verses 8 through 12. But first of all, we're going to start in verses 1 through 2 of confusion regarding the day of the Lord. Now, don't be afraid. We're not going to handle all that today. You would be here for three hours uh, if we tried to cover all of it. So we're going to break it apart over these next several Sundays here. So first of all, we want to look at the confusion regarding the day of the Lord. If you're confused, that's okay. Uh, because it can be sometimes confusing. I want to show you a little bit why here. Uh, so Paul mentions in his first letters, remember, he's following up his second Thessalonian letter right behind probably by a few months his first letter to the Thessalonians. And he said in that first letter, you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, the destruction will come upon them suddenly like birth pangs upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. The problem is the Thessalonians saw that word suddenly, and they thought he meant immediately. That's not what he meant, but now they're starting to fill in the blanks based on a, a wrong presumption here. This is the sixth mention uh, uh, in his two letters, the passage we're looking at today of the return of Christ. Uh, but, but basically, they're afraid that they've missed the rapture, that the day of the Lord has already come. He goes on to say with regard in uh, chapter 2 again here, verses 1 through 2, with regard to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. He, he defines what the day of the Lord is. There's not two days of the Lord. There's not a day when he comes back, comes, takes his church on, then comes back later on and does it again. There is one day. One day he comes back, he gathers together his people, uh, the people of God from every corner of the earth, and at the same time he is going to judge those people who rejected him. So there's one day of the Lord here. 
Paul in 1 Thessalonians said this, Now, as the time and epochs, brethren, we have no need of anyone to write to you, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, which I just mentioned. So he has already taught them, so he's, he's basically writing this based on their previous instruction that, that, that he had given them. The problem is we didn't get some of that instruction. So we have to make some deductions here. He says, he mentions there again, as I've already read, that, that uh, it will come upon them suddenly. But then he goes on to encourage them in verse 9 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. It's that whole idea of gathering together, that we may live together with him. I want you to ponder just how intimate that is. How sweet that is. At this, at this point in time, I mean, would you be willingly to confess that sometimes you get a little tired of the rest of us? Sometimes you're, some of you students, you're kind of ready to go home for summer for a while. You get a little tired of the roommates. Uh, you know, sometimes we all need a break from one another. You know that Jesus never gets tired of you. God longs for you to be together with him in paradise. He is amongst us even right now, but he's invisible. There's going to be one a point in time when we're going to be able to see him face to face and we will be gathered together. It's going to be this blessed reunion. Uh, the intimacy of that, the love of that has got to be in the forefront of your mind always. Otherwise, you will err. Uh, and you will, you, will, you will miss the point of so much of what God teaches you, both in Scripture but also through the experiences of your life. John, uh, in John chapter 6, Paul, uh, Jesus says this, All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me I will lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son believes in him may have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. This is not like some kind of military draft where you just get this number and you show up at the base for your physical. He is coming for you personally, one-on-one, -on -one, in love to bring you, to, in a sense, uh, carry you over the threshold to be his bride forever and ever and ever. But the, and the reason why I want to emphasize this is because your discontentment your complaining attitude, your impatience, your discouragement so often comes because you question God's love for you. Because you question God's love for you. God loves you enough to come back and come get you and to take you home. That needs to be on the forefront of our heart and our, our mind because when bad things happen to us, we too quickly turn on God. And we get upset at him, and we get discouraged, and we get embittered, and, we're, and, we're, and we're, we're impatient with other people. The person who is convinced of God's love is a patient person. The person who's convinced of God's love is, is a contented person. You know why? It's because you carry heaven around with you. And no matter what your circumstances, you are experiencing that love of God. It's there, but just because of our sinfulness, we don't see it. So I want that, as we're talking about the details of when and how, and we're going to get into next Lord's Day, Lord's willing, about the Antichrist and all that kind of stuff, I want you to remember that this is a love relationship we have with God, and he is going to come one day, no matter what happens, and bring us home to himself. And that same love that's going to be coming then 
is available for you to experience now, but you've got to fight for it. You've got to fight for it. Paul writes in the passage because the, 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 he writes this passage because the Thessalonians are, quote, shaken from their composure and they are disturbed. Um, he, 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 and what's happened here, evidently, is that someone has come in and they've pretended to have a message, a, 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 a word from the Lord or a letter from Paul to say that the day of the Lord has already come. So they're now afraid because someone has uh, made a fraudulent claim and they've thrown, in a sense, taken Paul's name in vain based upon that claim here. So they are shaken and they, they are disturbed. That idea of shaken is the same the word that would describe an earthquake or the shaking of a tree in the wind. The idea of disturbed is kind of a combined word that means uh, mind and also disturbed. So they're frightened here. They are going through anxiety, fear. Uh, their, their hope is being ch- challenged here. And they are devastated by this particular deception that's come into the church. Isn't that amazing? The church is brand new. And the devil comes right in and gets it. If you weren't blessed to be here last Sunday, I want you to go online and listen to sermon. Jack preached just an amazing sermon last Sunday. And one of the things we talked about on Monday during our staff meeting was, Jack, you had just an amazing sermon on Sunday. Expect the devil to to pick on you today. And Jack came to our session meeting, and I kept looking over at him, and I could see his eyes swelling, and I could see him kind of going down and everything. And I said, you're sick. And he said, yeah, it just kind of came on me in the session meeting. I said, sometimes I'm sick in session meetings too, but it's not the... uh, And... uh, so, so he went home and stayed home for two. He's got that week-long cold that everybody's getting here, you know? So, I mean, I'm not a prophet, but I was prophetic in that time. The devil was going after him. That's what often happens, right? You have this, the mountaintop is, you, that's why you just want to stay in the mountain. You never want to come back to the valley because I just want to, you know, live. The, I want to wait in Windy Gap for, or, or, you know, for the rest, or Bon Clarkin for the rest, of, for the Lord to come back. It just doesn't, it doesn't happen that way. So they got, they went and got converted. Paul plants this church. Paul gets run out of town. And now some scoundrels coming in, making this new claim that Christ already came back. Christ already came came back. Well, this is not new. Paul dealt with it. He also dealt with it with the Ephesians, as we'll see. But this also, this is the foundation of one of the major cults of our modern times. Uh, Charles T. Russell, uh, the founder of Jehovah's Witnesses, asserted that Christ came back invisibly on October 1st, 1914. Did you know that? Of course you didn't, because it came back invisibly, right? So he started this whole cult based on the visible, invisible return of Jesus Christ. And, of course, he had some new revelation that he can't de- uh, uh, prove or anything like that. And he starts this entire movement behind this misunderstanding. It's the exact same thing that was going on in the Thessalonian church 2,000 years ago. Same thing was happening in the Ephesian church. Paul says, uh, uh, you have swerved from the truth, and some people have swerved from the truth, saying the resurrection has already happened he goes on to say that because of this, it upsets the faith of some, and it leads, leads people into ungodliness. Now, why would, why would, if you believe that Christ has already come back, he's already returned, all that stuff's already filled, why would that lead you into ungodliness? Because at that point in time, it doesn't matter what you do, right? You've already missed the train. You're like sailors who missed the boat, so let's just party it up in port, Right? This is why this, one reason why this teaching is so dangerous. He goes on to say this is either came from a spirit or a message or a letter from us. Paul's not even quite sure where this, where this rumor came from, 
but he's trying to nip it in the bud right now. But somebody claimed to have a prophetic honors, to have some utterance or some kind of authority, or they used a forged letter to, to teach this. Now, look, folks, here's another contemporary application. Be very, very wary of those who claim to have a word from the Lord. Now, do we get a word from the Lord? We do, and it's in this lovely black-bound book, okay? Now, in a sense, we ought to get a word from the Spirit who takes these words, inspired by the Spirit, and applies them to our heart. That's a legitimate word from the Lord. But an illegitimate word from the Lord is, I have some sort of special revelation that tells me to do something or some other, or that I've got some kind of vision. And normally, if you keep following the trail, there's money connected to the end of it. Or there's a relationship issue, or there's some kind of a power issue, or something like that. Be very, very skeptical of people who have this word from the Lord. I'm just telling you, uh, this is the foundation for particular cults and just bizarre practices. You know, again, our rule of thumb is if the word that someone has from the Lord disagrees with Scripture, it's to be rejected. And if it agrees with Scripture, it's unnecessary, right? Just deduce that. You don't need this extra biblical enlightenment that comes from somebody. They give you some abuses of this kind of thing in the past. For instance, I got some great illustrations, some juicy illustrations from uh, Rick Phillips. In, in 1858, a Roman Catholic woman by the name of Bernadette Sobreros claimed that the Virgin Mary had appeared in the French village of Lourdes. Today, five million pilgrims journey to Lourdes each year seeking miraculous healings. In the town of 15,000, it boasts 270 hotels, second only to Paris, for pilgrims who are looking to see the Virgin Mary. In 1996, a curvature of the window pane in Tucson, Arizona office building brought, uh, was thought to be the outline of Mary's figure. Over 10, mi- 10 years, hundreds of thousands of people have paid homage to the glass panes. A woman in Fort Lauderdale said that her 10-year-old grilled cheese sandwich, half-eaten, bore the image of the Virgin Mary. She sold it online to the Golden Palace Casino for $28,000. Can I, can I be honest with you? I'm a little jealous. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm thinking like, uh, we make a lot of grilled cheese sandwiches here when we're thinking about trying to get bigger building and that kind of thing. But they sell it at $28,000. And the, and the people who bought it said, we would have paid as much as we, we, we had to to get a grilled cheese that looks like Mary. Now, you reject Scripture. You don't go to church. But man, I kind of tell you one thing. I got to have that grilled cheese sandwich. There are a lot of churches that sell advertising spaces in bulletins. Now, lest you think I'm Catholic bashing, there's plenty of room to bash Protestants. Well, I guess what's called Protestants. Evangelicalism has, is so broad now, it doesn't even, uh, it's hard to define anymore. But have you seen some of the clowns on the television? The Benny Hens, the Kenneth Copelands, the Crefro Dollars? The multi-millionaires that are out there bilking people for their hard-earned income with the promise of healing, the selling of prayer rags, the selling of holy water. There is a multi-million dollar industry in Lord's France to go see the Virgin Mary, and there is a multi-million dollar industry to take your money from you and claim that they've now made one leg equal to the other leg in their miraculous healing powers. People are suckers for this kind of thing not you 
not you. Uh, well, if you pay attention to this <laughs> in other sermons, not you, right? So he keeps on going here. Uh, the reason why this is important, I mean, again, going to 2 Corinthians, Satan himself disguises an angel light. His servants also disguise himself as servants of righteousness, right? I mean, if Satan were to show up and go, I am the underlord of the underworld or the overlord of the underworld, whatever, you know, I am Satan, bow down to me. That would terrify you, right? But if he shows up with a bouffant hairdo and beautifully white teeth, and he talks, and he tells you exactly what you want to hear, you might bow down to him. Folks, we've got to be careful. You've got to have a biblical filter that filters everything that comes your way because better people than us have fallen for these kind of shenanigans. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And boy, don't you know they use the Internet. He says, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. The implication is, again, that they've been left behind here. And evidently, uh, they, they, this kind of happened quickly. In other words, when they got this false report, they almost immediately, they almost immediately believed it. You know, we've been going through Galatians in our men's Bible study, and Paul is just offended and brokenhearted in, the, in Galatians. He calls them, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? You know, he's upset. And part of the reason why he's upset, that as soon as some... Sh- Somebody came in teaching them for their doctrine. They grabbed hold of that. They didn't even fight for it, you know. And there's a little bit of a sense here that they're now believing this false report. So he knows, he knows enough to know that, that his own teaching has been ignored or misunderstood or misrepresented. Uh, and that evidently they're claiming that this uh, teaching, this forgery came from Paul's himself. This is the reason. He mentions in 3.17, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, and this is the distinguishing mark of every letter. This is the way I write. So he's trying to get them to say, this is the real thing. You need to be looking for the way I close my letters here. He also goes on with an imperative command in 2.15. He says then, so then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or mouth or by letter from us. Now, y'all... There's, there was this big anti, I guess in the 60s and 70s, I was part of it, this big anti-tradition movement where the, the, where, where the church was against traditions, against the creeds, against singing hymns of the faith, and against the doctrines that have held the church true uh, for many, many years. Everybody wanted something new, and they wanted something sparkling. They wanted something modern and vogue and that kind of thing. Uh, it's not that traditions uh, themselves are sacred, but as they are based on Scripture, they are sacred. Is there a danger of being too much of a traditionalist? There absolutely is, but you keep safe with good biblical traditions. Now, how do you do that? Well, you do it through creeds. You do it by singing the Bible in hymns. You do it with with beefy, meaningful prayer. You do it with expositional teaching of Scripture, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. You look at the doctrines of the faith. You embrace uh, the truths of, the, uh, of, of folks that left us a wonderful heritage uh, of biblical truth through the Westminster Confessions. Uh, think about it, yo. Islam... Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses already mentioned, all started off as Christian cults because people forsook the traditions or traditions which had been handed down to him. There is this little piece of paper that you have that Sarah and Jack work really hard on. 
this, this in and of itself is a powerful, powerful lesson. I actually I teach a worldview class uh, at Anderson University and have been this semester and just had a, a blast doing it. I actually just took the bulletin one day and I, and I spent a half an hour going through what is Christian worship just based on the most recent bulletin, the, the elements of Christian worship. There, this, this is our roadmap to keeping Orthodox Christianity sound and passing it to the next generation. Now, can we go too far on that? Yeah, we can go too far on that. But th- this helps keep us from falling into the dangers that so many people have fallen into. Paul commands us to keep to the traditions. Now, if the traditions are unbiblical, we shouldn't have them. So you need to know the, your Bible as well. And this is what's happened to the Thessalonians. They have forsaken what Paul already taught them, and they've moved on with the new, the bright, the vogue, the woke, to coin a phrase. Our Westminster Larger Catechism, question number 60, instructs Christians the proper manner of responding to God's word. This is what you are to do. It is required of those that hear the word preached, that they attend upon it with diligence, preparation, and prayer, examine what they hear by the scriptures, receive the truth with faith, love, meekness, and readiness of mind, as the word of God, meditate and center on it, hide in it, it in their hearts, and bring forth the fruit of their lives. Many of us just recently heard about what it's like sharing the gospel. We're having a conversation with a Muslim. You're not allowed to ask questions. You're not allowed to potentially challenge anything. You know, because it's basically, it's, it's tyrants don't like to be challenged. And that is, a, that is a religion of tyranny that holds people in bondage. When we come before you, we say, ask questions. We want you to have this book in your lap when we're, or on your phone. I know we're on your phone. Just make sure it's the book that's on your phone and not Candy Crush. Uh, we want you to ask questions. Our whole catechism is based on questions, right? You know why? Because we got nothing to hide. We have God's word. That's the kind of thing that we need to adhere. If we will stick to that, we're safe from all the others. There's not going to be a new cult started in Anderson, South Carolina. There's enough cults out there. Right? If you're going to just go join another one. You know, if you're going to don't go start a new one, not from this church, please. There's three, three I mean, don't start another one either. Don't, don't take that too far. There are three problems with a, with a full understanding of this passage, though, and this is where you have to be patient with people who disagree with us. Again, we, we hold these truths with a certain level of humility as well. It's a difficult passage for several reasons. Paul is not sure of the source of the information. He's not exactly sure exactly what's been said other than the day of the Lord's already happened. He refers back to a previous instruction that we don't have privy to. We didn't get to go to the Paul Bible study at Thessalonians and learn when he taught them all about the, the day of the Lord. We have to kind of discern it from him answering questions. And then the other problem is this. Paul's purpose is not theological. This is not his opportunity to write out a a blow-by-blow play of the return of Christ, it's pastoral. They're upset, their their faith is shaken, and he's trying to be a pastor to them. He's not trying to be a seminary professor. He's trying to be a daddy. Now, that's a good thing. That's what I'm trying to do, too. But it would be kind of nice if he was a theological daddy because there's some blanks here. 
But we can look at other scripture. Again, one of the hermeneutical principles that we employ, that good church, Bible-believing church employs, that you, you look at scripture based upon teaches and, teaching in other scriptures. Gordon Fee says this, these, these realities together account for the major part of our challenges and understanding. To put that another way, when two parties are in con- conversation about something fairly well known to both of them, the, eaves, uh, the eavesdropping outsider is left with a rather large amount of guesswork as to what's going on, right? I mean, you've, happened, you've come up to somebody in a party and they're locked into some kind of deep conversation about stuff that they, uh, they, they all know about. Uh, in my case, it would be baseball. I'm like, what? You know, uh, you're just confused. You're having to guess. That's, we're kind of watching a conversation between Paul and Thessalonians, and we're having to figure things out uh, as we go around. But the issue here is when is the day of the Lord going to come? And Paul's saying there's going to be certain signs that are going to be preceding the day of the Lord. And they're going to be preceded to the point that it's going to be visible. There's not going to have to be a guest when the Lord comes back. It's not going to come back in secret in 1914, all right? There's no, it's going to be very obvious. How in the world did that start when you've got Scripture like this? So basically, you don't have to worry for the following reasons. Now he's going to talk about some signs that precede the day of the Lord, verses 3 through 4. Because of our limited time, we're only going to have time to look at one of those signs today here. Um, but he is. Uh, but I want you to keep this in mind too. As he's talking about in First Thessalonians, he was talking about the blessings of the return of the king, uh, the blessings to believers. Now he's going to kind of emphasize the the punishment to those who don't follow the king. They are in war against the king, and as Aragon smote the uh, orcs and the and uh, Easterlings and those others who fought uh, alongside the Dark Lord, that's exactly what's going to happen when Jesus comes back. You're either for them or against them. So he spent 1 Thessalonians talking about this is what's happening for the A-team. This is what happens for the good guys. He's going to emphasize the bad guys. So you've got to keep that in mind because I don't want you to get dark in your understanding and discouraged as well here. So he's talking about those who perish here. But basically, the first, the first sign, and we're only going to cover this one today, is the apostasy has to come first. Apostasy has to come first. And you see that here. Uh, first of all, apostasy is a rebellion. It's a turning away from uh, or to become apostate. In the secular Greek, according to one theologian, uh, that it was a, a political or military revolt, sometimes in a sense of falling away from the position once held uh, out of rebellion against a power or deity to whom one was not committed. Historically, the word has been understood to refer to some of God's own people, either Jews or Christians, to have chosen to rebel against God and Christ in one way or the other. Uh, and, and, and we see that even today, but in maybe in a, in a lesser degree. We see once great denominations that flamed with righteousness, that were lighthouses in a dark world, compromise and, and basically become unrecognizable as they follow around a, an accommodating, culturally accommodating uh, teaching lifestyle uh, manner about themselves. They pull on political correctness. They go down the rope trap. They basically take the bar and they make it so low that, that a snail could get over it. And they just open up that wide gate, um, that narrow gate that God created. That church takes it and they makes it wide. And they, now, and they give the title Christian to everybody just because they want to fill seats, just because they want to be nice, just because they're spineless cowards, just because they are deceived by the... I don't know all the motivation. 
a lot of us are refugees from some of those denominations. So it's happening now. It happened in more in a more um, uh, public manner in years past, and and it's going to be that way in our future as well. But this apostasy is as old as the Garden of Eden. I mean, it was Eve and Adam wanted to be like God, and they took of the fruit, and because of that, we all fell in them. Probably one of the most uh, terrifying examples in the book of Ezekiel. You know, Ezekiel uh, is terrifying. To, I mean, it's, uh, have you read Ezekiel lately? I mean, Ezekiel's just wild, his visions and what he sees, but one of the more terrifying ones is this view of apostasy that happened in the very temple of Jerusalem itself. Let me pick up with Ezekiel chapter 8, verse uh, 9. Listen, listen to what he is seeing happening in the temple of Jerusalem, God's temple. Go in and see, go, and he said to me, this is the uh, spirit, I can't remember if it's the spirit or angel. Go in and see the wicked abominations that are committed here. So I entered, and look, he's in the temple. I entered, look, and behold, every form of creeping things and beast and detestable things with all the idols of the house of Israel were carved on the wall around. And standing in front of them were 70 elders of the house of Israel, each man with a censer in his hand and a fragrance of the cloud of incense ring. They're offering incense. And then he said to me, Son of man, do you see the elders of the house of Israel are committing in the dark each man in the room of his carved images? For they say, The Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. And he said to me, Yet you will see still greater abominations which they are committing. And then he brought me to the entrance of the gate of the Lord's house, which was towards the north. And behold, women were sitting there weeping for Tammuz, And he said to me, do you see this son of man? Yet you will see greater abominations than these. And then he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house. And behold, at the entrance of the temple of the Lord, people between the porch and the altar were about 25 men and their backs to the temple of the Lord and their faces towards the east. And they were prostrating themselves eastward towards the sun. And he said to me, see these son of men, is it a light thing for the house of Judah to commit abominations which they have committed here? And they have filled the lands with violence and provoked me repeatedly. That's a very apparent, a very apparent uh, apostasy. They're literally using the Lord's temper to bow down to idols, to bow down to the sun, to offer sacrifices and incense to demons is what they're doing. It's much more subtle in our age because in an, in, in a, in a, in a, with a desire to be loving and nice, we have compromised God's word. We don't see the idols. We don't see the idols themselves, but it's idolatry nonetheless. Henderson Kistermaker says this, during the old dispensation the predicted apostasy had been foreshadowed again and again by defection of Israel from the living God. Maybe the best example of this was what happened with Antiochus Epiphanes, the Greek-Syrian uh, ruler over that part of the world, uh, Israel. Uh, he was determined to, to Hellenize, to make everybody Greek, and they, he hated Jewish worship because it worshipped one God without idols. So let me quote to you from, this may be the first time I've ever quoted from an apocryphal book, 
But let me quote to you, because the historical context is important here. In 1 Maccabees uh, chapter 1, speaks of what happened in Israel at that time. In those days there came forth from Israel transgression of the law who persuaded many, saying, let us go and make a covenant with the Gentiles that are around us. Isn't that interesting? Let's go make a covenant with the culture that we're surrounded by. Let's stop being a particular people, a special people for God. And they made themselves uncircumcised and forsook the holy covenant and joined themselves to the Gentiles and sold themselves to do evil. And many of Israel consented to this worship and sacrificed to the idols and profaned the Sabbath. Antiochus Epiphanes actually sacrificed a a sow, a pig, uh, in the temple. And the king's officers that were enforcing the apostasy came to the city of Modin to sacrifice now, here's the rest of the story, uh, according to, uh, to one theologian. Now, here at Modan, which is not far from Jerusalem, there lived at that time an aged priest, Matthias. When the commissioner of Antiochus requested that we take the lead in offering a pagan sacrifice, he not only refused to do this, but slew both the commissioner and the apostate Jew who was about to comply with the crest. The deed of courage marked the beginning of the splendid era of the Maccabean Revolt. Now, I am not endorsing you to slay an IRS agent. That's not going to help anybody. We're to love our neighbor. We're to love our enemies, right? Okay. But, but that's, that, that, the history of Israel was so that they were so taken over with apostasy, it took an armed rebellion to get the people back to worship the one true God. It's happened before, folks. It will happen again. Apostasy will reach its peak uh, here in the end times. Paul says this, but realize this, the last days, difficult times will come for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they've denied its power. Avoid such men as this. But evil men and apostles will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. The problem is, is, that, is that there's no moral compass left. Everybody does, just like the book of Judges, everybody does what's right in, the, in, in their own eyes. Christianity has a moral compass, a moral compass that has guided the, the Western world uh, for many, many generations. Now, the, the values of what is right and what is wrong, what you do when you don't, they're, they're being forgotten. But you still have those truths. You know, one of the things that's shocking to me is what's happening on so many of these, um, uh, uh, even this West Coast series, uh, 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 West Coast uh, cities such as uh, Portland, Oregon. I follow some people on, in, that are in Portland, and 50% of all the fires in Portland are come from homeless camps. Fentanyl is smoked on the street. Uh, if they find a fentanyl user, the, the city will come in and give that person a tent and a tarp so that they can camp out and they can have their own homeless city. Uh, our, the REI store just left. Uh, the, one of the banks is just leaving. The drug stores are all closed down because they've been shoplift to death. Y'all, Walmart is no longer going to be in Portland, Oregon. Now, when Walmart leaves, <laughs> you know, when they are the measure of what's, you know, what is a good culture, uh, they, but they just, they can't take it because this whole anti-police movement, this whole let everybody be their own people, it's killing. And what's happening is the sin of those fentanyl users, homelessness, the crime-riddled places, is the culture is paying for the price of those sins instead of the individual. 
That's lawlessness. And we're going to see next week, the man of lawlessness is going to help continue with that kind of thing. But dear brother, dear sister, you have a different standard. You have a different hope. You know right from wrong. Your consciences are formed from Holy Scripture. So we are, like the Thessalonians, not to be shaken from our composure or be disturbed. As Gandalf told Pippin, courage will be your best defense against the storm that is at hand. And that is what I bring. So the day of the Lord is yet future. It's coming. In Matthew 25, Jesus said this, The king will say to those on the right, Come, you are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the earth. He says in John chapter 6, All the father who has given me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. In Revelation chapter 22, he says, The Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes to take water of life without cost. He who testifies to these says, says this, Yes, I'm coming quickly. Amen. Come quickly, Lord. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And that's how the Bible closes. With the hope, when he does come back, we're going to experience pleasure that we cannot even imagine right now. So as we go through this series and we look at just how dark the world will be, and it will be dark, and it has been dark, and it's dark now, but it's going to get darker, you cannot forget that if you're a Christian, you're a child of the light. This wonderful passage when during the worst part of, uh, of what was happening in the Lord of the Rings with the Dark Lord making the whole world dark around him. There's this wonderful quote involving Sam, my favorite character in the whole series. And there peeping among the cloud wrecked above the dark tor, uh, Rocky Craig, up on the high mountains, Sam saw a white star twinkle for a while. The beauty of it smote his heart. And as he looked up out of the forsaken land and hope returned to him, for like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end, the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high in beauty forever beyond its reach. That's our hope as well. Father, I do come before you, Lord, and just pray on behalf of this precious congregation, Lord, that we would always remember that there is light beyond the darkness. And as we live our life, Knowing that the king is going to return, let him find us to be faithful servants, a loyal bride, good people who promote good things and the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Christ's name, amen.